Hello, and thank you for connecting with us here at Oasis Online. If this ministry is an encouragement to you, I would love to hear from you. Would you send me an email at pastor at obclv.org? I hope you enjoy the service today and that God would speak directly to your heart. Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue uh, this sermon series. Uh, Simon says, uh, study through 1 Peter. Now, many of you may not know who I am. I am not Pastor Aaron. And... Uh, and I'm a little younger, shorter, uh, less athletic, but that's okay. Um, this past week, uh, Pastor Aaron, as you had heard, he's been away. Him and his wife were at this conference in California. And yes, it may have been hot, uh, but today's message is really about grace. And, you know, grace has this idea of uh, getting what we don't deserve. And this week in the office, as as uh, Norma and I, we were laboring and working hard and, and just doing all the different things in ministry, I get a picture message on my cell phone. And uh, normally when Aaron sends me messages. It's primarily text messages, or I don't think we've ever left each other a voicemail, but um, the picture on my cell phone was a picture of him and his wife, and, and I see like the end of their feet, and then I see this really beautiful pool uh, in the background. And uh, I said, yes, suffering, enjoy. And uh, I'm glad they had a chance to get away, but I really don't think I deserve to get that picture um, in the middle of a hundred plus degree heat this week. But nonetheless, uh, we're glad they're back safely with us. I'm excited about this passage. Um, a couple, probably a couple weeks ago, Aaron and I were talking about his travel plans and how since he'd be away uh, and I'd be here in town, that I'll take the time this week to prepare. And uh, looking at this passage over the last few weeks, uh, I'm just excited to kind of to share uh, what the Lord uh, has laid on my heart in regards to this passage. So we're going to be in First Peter 4, uh, 1 through 11, and we're going to go verse by verse. Um, the title uh, is Pictures of Grace. Um, and specifically, um, in each one of these verses, we're going to see our past condition uh, in grace. We're going to see also uh, uh, God's grace in our present conversion, as well as our future conduct. Um, this past week, many of you have known, many of you have watched the news, and many of you have seen pictures of just the, for the lack of a better word, the horror, the tragedy that has gone on in the city of Houston. Um, within three-week span, four-week span, I've watched the narrative go from Russia to racism to a hurricane. And, and, and I've seen the people that were arguing and protesting against each other one week were then helping each other um, out of their homes in a boat or a jet ski or whatever it may have been. The saddest picture that I saw this week that just, as I sat in the office and was going through social media, was a picture of three or four elderly women in, 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 in a nursing, convalescent, elderly assistance home and they were sitting in wheelchairs and in the recliners with the water level right here. And, and in the article, the, the plumbing, the sewage, and all that stuff broke. They were literally sitting in diseased water. And yes, they may be 1,000, 1,500 miles away, but that's our neighbors. That's our loved ones. And, and then you get to see pictures of, of people not caring what people look like, not caring how much money they make, not caring where they came from or what neighborhood. They're going with boats, with fishing boats, bass boats, jet skis, and, and just rescuing people off of their rooftops, out of their homes, out of their attics. I read one article where the fire department was telling people in Houston, if you go into the attic with the water level rising, be sure to take an axe with you in case so you don't get trapped from getting out, where people literally had to axe out of their attic to get onto their roof. Now, a lot of times when these storms happen and these things happen, the question is raised, why did this happen? A lot of times and in, in, in these tragedies, people ask the fair question, in my opinion, God, what was the reason behind this? Um, you know, throughout the Bible, we see 
tremendous pictures of God's grace toward us, even in the midst of storms, even in the midst of trials. But let me tell you the thing that I saw this week that really just, for the lack of a better term, made me mad. I was ticked. I saw it, scratching my head, and then I confirmed that that there was other people talking about the same thing. The thing that I saw this week in the wake of a hurricane, in the wake of rescuing, was I saw Christians attacking other Christians. And I don't know about you, but I'm not like a big follower of the Lakewood Church. I'm not a big follower of Pastor Joel Olstein. Uh, and, and in terms of like, he's not one of my top five favorite preachers. And there were people attacking him, whether or not his church opened for shelter. And I don't know the whole story, but the fact that I saw Christian friends and brothers and sisters of mine on Facebook posting these pictures of saying, look what he's doing or look what he's doing. In the back of my mind, the first thought comes to my head is, what is that going to do for the kingdom of God? Like, don't, don't you think people will look at that? Don't you think people will say, hey, look, Christians are attacking Christians. And, and I literally got upset. And then I said to myself, this isn't showing the love of God. This isn't showing the picture of God's mercy and God's grace. But it made me quickly realize as I studied through these 11 verses that the three pictures of God's grace are going to show us that we had a past condition. There was a reason why God sent his only son, Christ, to save us. And, and, and I'll be transparent in the respect that I'm the type of person that if I struggle with something and I learn the hard way and I mess up and I make a mistake and then I make a change in my life, whenever I see someone else struggle with something similar or that very same thing, I, I kind of kind of I'm not as graceful as I should be. In other words, in the back of my mind, I think, well, they should know better. They should fix this. They should, they should act different or they should get this right. And then it's the Spirit of the Lord that quickly reminds me, they're not where you've been. They haven't traveled the same road. They haven't learned the same lessons that, that you've learned. And so this idea of grace to this morning, getting what we don't deserve, one, uh, another definition would be a, a pardon away from our sins or the application of Christ's righteousness to the sinner. A lot of times we can catch ourselves up in the political newsy moment and spew out our opinion without really thinking about what we said. But I often wonder as a Christian, how many opportunities of grace do we miss because of a political point or because of, hey, I want to say this or I want to get this out? Or how many people do we put down that we had a golden opportunity to show them God's grace and God's love? The point today is if we're to reach our world, we must remember the grace of God that we received, then to in turn give that grace back to the world. If we want to reach the world around us, we got to remember the grace that God gave us. This past week, my wife shared with me an article. I'm going to read a little bit uh, of it at the beginning here, and then we're going to come back to it here in a little bit. Um, Kind of an interesting article, but it really beautifully uh, described the grace of God. And uh, this article was written by a, a young lady by the name of Angel Hatfield. Uh, she grew up in a pastor's home. And as a teenager, um, unfortunately, before marriage, she became pregnant. And she was scared for five months on how to confide it to her father, who was also a pastor, how to, to say this. Um, she even talked about another uh, teenager that was in the, in the news 
um, for the sake of respect, I won't say the name, but this young teenager was pregnant in the Christian high school that she attended, refused to allow her to walk in its graduation in, in a way to kind of teach a lesson of, now I'm all, I, I believe that there's consequence for the things we do wrong, but I also believe that God shows us grace in the midst of, for the lack of a better term, our stupidity. And, and so this uh, this young teenager is uh, citing this other school that made a decision uh, to basically make an example out of this other young lady who was pregnant. She couldn't walk in her graduation. And uh, as she goes on in this article, she says, I understand the school's desire to teach their students lessons about the consequences of sin, but I also think that the events in so-and-so's life could have provided students with a lesson about grace, the grace that caused Jesus to tell a, a woman living in sin, neither do I condemn you, but rather go and sin no more. And um, so she kind of relates. Like, I went through this scenario. She said, I was rebellious. I went against my parents' uh, desires. I went against the plan and the will of God for my life. And uh, and she said, by fear, I hid my pregnancy for five months. Um for, from her father. She's like, I know the guilt and the shame that I would carry. It would only be amplified, uh, plus bring in condemnation as others learn my secret. But then she says it, um, this, this whole ordeal of telling her parents about this pregnancy, she goes on to say, it weighed heavily on me, especially in knowing that another decision, a secret one, to not have my baby could rid me of being shamed by others. She knew there was a way out of her consequence of her sin. But a little later, I want to come back to this article and share with you her father's response when she does um, muster the courage to, to confide in, and, and to tell in him exactly you know, what happened. And his response, um, I, I'm looking forward to getting to that point. I don't want to get ahead of it too fast. His response, in my opinion, beautifully shows the grace of God. And, and why, why is God gracious to us? Well, for first of all, we're sinners. He sent his son Christ to die for us. We didn't deserve uh, Christ's sacrificial death. So how can we, in turn, share that grace with others? Three pictures this morning. First of all, this morning, God gave us grace in our past condition. We're going to start off there in verse 1. Grace in our past condition. We're going to see right off the bat in verse 1, we see this idea of Christ's suffering. It says, 1 Peter 4, 1, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Before we go on, let me pray real quick. Lord, thank you for this day, this opportunity, just to gather together in your house this morning. Just pray in these next few moments, you'd give me the exact words uh, to say, Lord, as you use this message to speak in my heart uh, these last few weeks, Lord, I pray that today you would give me the exact words to say, and that in turn through your word, you can speak to hearts here this morning. Lord, we love you. You ask this in your name. Amen. Right off the bat in verse 1, for Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. How did he suffer? Well, the Bible clearly tells us that he literally was tortured. He literally went to a cross to, to die on a cross for sins, for transgressions, for crimes he did not commit. But rather he took upon uh, on, on himself our transgressions, our uh, sin, the condemnation for us to whether or not we will go to heaven or hell someday. He suffered for us through torture and death. And, and, and Peter's really carrying on that theme of suffering. But then he goes on and he says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Arm yourselves. The actual Greek word there is literally kind of uh, bringing the connotation forward of put on the battle armor. 
you know, and, and in terms of be prepared to put on the same mind. Well, what was the mindset of Christ when he had suffered? That mindset was one of obedience and one of sacrifice. Because as we talked about, as Pastor Aaron talked about last week, Christ had an opportunity whether or not to obey his father's plan or to kind of go and do his own thing. And so when we are encouraged to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, we are encouraged to, A, do what God the Father wants us to do, be obedient, and in some cases, if necessary, sacrifice where needed to. He says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. That idea of ceasing from sin. Ceasing means to stop. The reason Christ gave his life on the cross was to stop sin. Now, wait a minute. Pastor Dan, I've, I sinned last week, 2,000 years after Christ died on the cross. Well, he died on the cross for all sin, past, present, and future. And, and yes, you and I <coughs> may still struggle, may still have things that we are not 100% where we need to be. But the fact that it says, for he hath suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. In other words, the Bible here is St. Peter saying, look, the reason why Christ died on the cross was not only to conquer sin and the consequences of it, but also to stop it altogether. That's the goal. That's the idea. Um, not only is Christ suffering here in verse 1, but verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. This, this shows us in our past condition, the grace that God gave us was the fact that it was made possible by the fact that he was willing and obedient to live his father's plan for our life. That he should no longer live the rest of his time. That idea, like the rest of his time, the rest of his life. Christ wasn't to live the rest of his life in the, in the flesh to the lust of men. His, his purpose was not to live man's plan for the rest of his life. Because what, what, what was man's plan? What was his own disciples even asking for? What were they asking for? Overthrow Rome. Set us free. Set up your kingdom right here, right now. And, and those were the desires and those were the plans of, uh, of mankind, his, even his own disciples. But his plan was rather than live the rest of his days, the rest of his time in, in the flesh according to those lusts or those desires of men, but to the will of God. He chose, and he made the choice to follow his father's plan moreover than the desires of man. But look at verse 3. For time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Remember who we were before Christ. Before salvation. Now, I was saved at a very young age. I, I was blessed with the privilege of being brought up in church. And at the young age of five years old, I placed my trust in Christ as my Savior. And so when people ask me, hey, Dan, do you remember what you were like before uh, you got saved? I only have like five years to kind of go back on. And, and, and so I often think, now, I there's a little bit of debate in my family whether or not this is possibly true or not. Um, one of my earliest memories in my life was my first birthday. And people say, well, how do you remember your first birthday? Before I explain this, there is no videotape of this event taking place. I've looked through the family archives. But I remember a strawberry cheesecake in front of me on my first birthday with a number one on it. And I specifically remember it 
because I put my face right into the middle of it. And before this, the fanfare or whatever, and I got in trouble or whatever. Um, and to this day, I love cheesecake. And if you want, I, I go back to that. But um, that was a very early memory. But from like then on to I was five years old, the only thing I can remember of my life before Christ was the fact that I was a, for the lack of a better term, I was a church brat. Um, I, I was a bad kid. I, I found out later on in my teenage years that my, one of my best friends in church, his name was Jonathan. Him and I were just absolute terrors to the point where the people in our church used to pray that one of us would move away because we were, we were a tag team partners in crime. And, uh, so when people ask, what was your life like before salvation? I was the church brat, AKA terror. I remember specifically one time those little, um, paver stones, those little square, uh, like red clay paver stones. One day, Jonathan and I decided to go out and outside of the church in the beautiful landscaped area. This is literally over at Liberty Baptist over on Lake Mead. I could show you the place where it happened. They had these beautiful little paver stones and we picked up a rock about this big and we just dropped it on a paver stone. And guess what? The paver stone broke and had all these nice little cracks in it. So as a five and six year old or four and five year old, we're doing this and we probably got through about four or five paver stones before someone said, hey, you're not supposed to do that. And that was the extent of my rebellious life uh, before salvation. And uh, I remember marching into the pastor's office. I remember getting home and, and getting my butt whooped. But um, at the same time, like this list in verse 3, Peter is saying, hey, remember who you were before Christ. And, and look at the list here is pretty pretty huge, like with some of the sins that he lists out here, lasciviousness and lust, you know, talking about evil appetites or desires, excess of wine, uh, talking about um, exactly what that says, having too much of, of something, and then, and then revelings and banquetings, literally, some of the commentators were saying that the revelings and banquetings were these pagan religious uh, parties or gatherings that were utter perversion, they were sensual in nature. All in the name of a of a false god, and uh, and, and abominable carries this idea of illegal uh, um, idolatries, placing something above uh, of God. And so he's telling these Christians, remember where you came from. One commentator said, "We may not have been guilty of such gross sins in our pre-conversion days, but we were still sinners, and our sins helped to crucify Christ." You know, a lot of times we can put bigger emphasis on bigger sins. And especially in 2017 in the church, we can look at certain sins that are more public and say, well, that's a huge sin in the eyes of God. But yet we marginalize our own sins at the same time. Help us to remember, and as Peter is saying, remember that no matter how large or how small your sin is, it still put Christ on the cross. In Romans 6, 6, the Bible says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. See, our old nature, the old man, the sin nature was crucified with Christ. So in other words, and I've heard Christians say this, and I've heard churches at a youth camp I went to a long, long time ago uh, say that, hey, we have our fire insurance card. We're not going to hell. So you can do whatever you want. It's all covered by grace. It's all covered by the blood. It is, but that doesn't give us the freedom to just go say, hey, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. Let's go riot the town and let's go, you know, do all these things that Peter just listed out. No, that's not the purpose of the Christian life. The purpose of Christ dying on the cross 
is that we should not serve sin, period. In other words, don't get trapped into it. See, God gave us grace in our past condition. The condition was that of being in sin. But secondly, this morning, he gives us grace in our present conversion. Look at verse 4. Wherein they think it's strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Well, who's this this they they're talking about? When you go back to verse 3, I think it's talking about this idea of the will of the Gentiles. This group of people is, 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 as some commentators put it, denotes the unsaved world. This is those that are lost, those that are without Christ. And, um, and, and so in verse 4, when we're talking about our present conversion, Peter is talking to Christians. Peter is talking um, to Christians, and he says, they, these people that are not of Christ, they think it's strange that you run not with them. That's the way it should be. That there's a difference. There's there's something that there's a noticeable difference that the lost world sees in us as Christians. They, there should be a, a notice that they don't live the same way we do. They don't com, like complain or or hate or the same way some others are accustomed to. They should see a difference in us. And that was what got under my skin when I saw Christians attacking Christians this last week. I'm like, the lost world sees that, and, and at the same time, they're kind of scratching their heads thinking. Is that how they're supposed to act? Or, or what if they see that and they say, well, if that's the way Christianity is, then why do I need to change? They should see a difference. But at the same time, this kind of shows us another picture of our past, of this was our life before Christ. You know, I think of the story of Paul and how he treated Christians before his conversion. A lot of the stuff that he had done and a lot of the stuff that he had criticized is almost synonymous with what's being laid out in this passage. One commentator said this, Unsaved people do not understand the radical change that their friends experience when they trust Christ and become children of God. They do not think it's strange when people wreck their bodies, destroy their homes, and are in their, uh, are in their lives by running from one cent to another. They, they don't find it strange when... The world acts like the world. They think, hey, that just happens. But the, the testimony that we should have is that people should see our walk. People should see our lifestyle. And it should look different to them. But instead of being the Christian that sees this ridicule or sees this, uh, uh, this speaking evil in verse 4, the speaking evil of you, Instead of being the type of Christian that wants to return in like manner or, or they treated me bad, so I'm going to treat them the same way. Um, like When that happens, I feel like we forget that we were once there. We forget that our sins were sending us to an eternal place called hell. And, and, and yet, a lot of times we, unfortunately, try to become a judge when we're not the judge. In fact, God is the judge. In verse 5, the continuation of verse 4, these, these they, that think it's strange, run not to them in the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who, speaking of these same people, shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Who is him that's ready to judge the quick and the dead? It's not you and me, it's God. So these people that are going against uh, um, speaking evil or that are, are the will of the Gentiles, these people that are of the world, 
they're going to answer to God someday. And the bottom line is you and I aren't the judge. That would be God. But how do we respond to that? Do we argue and get into a knockdown, drag out fight? Or should we pray for those who reject the message? It's a, it's a no-brainer. We should pray. Look at verse 6. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. This kind of gives the idea of the purpose of our preaching is to tell people about the gospel of Christ. Now, in this passage, it can get a little confusing. What does it mean by the gospel preached also to them that are dead? Now, we talked about this last week when, uh, when um, Christ visited uh, the spirits, and, and Pastor Aaron was talking about how it was like a declaration of victory. And I think Peter's coming back to the same idea, but in this instance, he's saying the gospel was preached to those that are dead already. And the gospel was preached during their lifetime that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. In other words, Peter here is saying, look, in our lifetime, we are not to live our life based off of men's judgment or standard toward us, but rather we are to live according to the God, to God's plan in the Spirit. So the question off this verse that comes to my mind is, who or what are you living for? Are you more concerned with what your neighbor thinks about your life or what God thinks about your life? Now, I grew up in Las Vegas my whole life. I went to public school uh, up until my senior year. And, and one of the things that I kick myself about is the fact that in most cases, I was more afraid to share my faith with my friends because I was afraid of what they would think about me rather than what God would think about me. And, and even last night, I got a message from a buddy of mine in high school. I, I messaged him about something completely unrelated. And he kind of replied, hey, good seeing you, talking to you, da 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 At the very end, he's like, if you need any help, let me know, especially for someone like you doing the work of the Lord. And, and I, I read that, and I was like, I can't remember one time in my life where I told him I was a Christian. But somehow, through social media, through following on online or whatever it was, he knew that, that I, A, I was a pastor, and I was working, doing the work of the Lord. And to kind of see that, I was just like, Lord, keep giving me those opportunities to reenact and reconnect with those people that I selfishly ignored or I selfishly kind of put their opinion above God's opinion. And, and these Christians in this verse were, were Christians specifically said by some commentators that were martyred for their faith, that were killed because of their faith. So in our present conversion, in salvation as Christians, People should see us walking differently. We as Christians must not be the judge. We must direct people to the judge. But we also need to remember there's a purpose to preach the truth of God. And, and, and I'm not saying that you stand on a street corner and scream your head off. I'm saying you live your life as you're, like you're different. You live your life seeking and praying and looking for opportunities to, to be a witness. God gives us grace in our, in, our, in, our, in our past condition, our present conversion. And then finally this morning, he'll give us grace in our future conduct. Look at verse 7. But the end of all things, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. The end of all things. Well, that's a phrase we've heard a lot in the last few months and years, right? End times, last days, the end of all things. Peter, like so many others in Scripture, 
was saying that the last days, the end of all things is at hand. In their lifetime, they believed they were living it right then, right now. Not 2,000 years later, but right then, right now. And if they believed it then, I believe as Christians, we ought to believe that the end is near, could be near. But guess what? You and I don't know the time clock. You and I don't know the the timeline of when the trumpet's going to be blown, when the Lord is going to bring judgment to this world. But yet we are encouraged to be sober, to watch in prayer. I read one thing this week that when I was studying this verse and I was, and I read the verse, I didn't see this initially, but when I read a couple other commentators and a couple other things that kind of explain this verse, I have to be honest with you, I kind of got excited about like a truth that was conveyed out of it by one of the commentaries that I read because it was something that I personally kind of had a pet peeve with, a, a personal struggle with. Um, ideally, um, one of the other things that kind of gets under my skin, and, and you have all seen this, experienced this, and probably heard about it in the media, is um, when someone comes out and says something to the effect, blood moons, total eclipse, hurricanes, um, Revelation 12 sign, the end is near, the rapture's happening on this date. And I just like, all right, rapture's going to happen on this date. I remember one time in college, I was jet skiing with my younger brother in Jacksonville one time, and we're like in the intercoastal waterway, we're going out to the Atlantic, and I looked at my watch and I said, hey, it's 6 o'clock. Isn't the rapture supposed to happen? And, and uh, him and I, we both know we're saved on our way to heaven. And he looks at me and goes, well, it either happened or we need to go get take care of something. And uh, and so obviously it didn't happen. Those predictions didn't come true. But what was interesting was Peter was even warning then that, yes, he believed that the end of all things was at hand. But this idea of soberness was to be sober-minded, to be right-minded, to be intellectually sound. One commentator said that this is a warning against wild thinking about prophecy that can lead to an unbalanced life in ministry, an unbalanced life in ministry. And I've seen that in so many cases all around this country, all around this world. When someone goes and claims the end is going to be on this date, and whether they preach it or believe it or disseminate that information any way, shape, or form, what do they and their followers do? Their entire life will change. I've heard of one pastor leaving a water hose on in his backyard for his dogs. Because he believed the rapture was going to happen. And, and the water bill went up and the rapture didn't happen. And, and I've, heard, I've heard of others, and I've heard of others wanting to, excuse me, wanting to put down their, their, their pets. Because they didn't want their pets to go on without them. And, and, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful in any way. Peter here is saying, look, Christians, you have a responsibility to watch, but also to be intellectually sound. In other words, know what the Bible says and yet apply it to your day and time because we're in 2017 and they looked at their timeline as the last days. Now, when I looked personally, this is this Pastor Dan's opinion, when I looked at the blood moons and the eclipse and all this different stuff happening, I'm like, well, ever since creation, the world has had growing pains. And if the trumpet blows in three weeks, I will not be complaining. Uh, I'd be like, praise the Lord, we're out of here. Uh, but at the same time, the, the key here is to be balanced, is to therefore be sober and watch under prayer. In a world of wild thinking, the church must remain sober-minded. Stay balanced. The idea of watch, this is interesting, is to stay alert. kind of has special meaning to Peter because what did he not do in the garden? 
He didn't watch as he was commanded. He did what? He fell asleep. He couldn't stay awake for just a little bit. I feel like there's too many Christians today that are falling asleep to the opportunities that God sets in front of us to reach the people we come in contact each and every day. And I feel like sometimes we fight battles and we we, we put out all these different things that really don't do anything for the kingdom of God. In fact, they could be counterproductive. So be right-minded. Yes, the end may be near. Watch and pray but be balanced. Verse 8, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Once again, Peter says, charity among yourselves. He's speaking to fellow Christians. He's speaking to fellow Christians to love each other and have unity of heart. Now, Brother Allen, if you and I disagree on something, that doesn't mean I don't love you. I, I may be a big, big fan of a certain sports team, and he could be a big, big fan of my biggest rival. I would pray for Alan to change his mind, but it's not going to change the way our friendship is. And, and yet society today tells us, if you disagree with me, you don't love me. If everyone agreed, nothing would ever get done. If everyone loved each other, nothing would ever get done. And, and the truth is, He's telling us, Peter's telling us, Christians, you need to love each other. Even there may be minute differences. You need to be unified. And and he says to have this charity, to have this love, have it fervently. This gives this idea of intensity. You know, you don't necessarily know how to love right away. My wife and I have been married for five years this December. And, And you've heard couples say this. I love her more or I love him more each and every day. The process of loving my wife is, is, is a process of me learning. It's a process of me training. It's a process of putting her needs, my daughter's needs, uh, before my own. And, and, and this idea of fervent um, is no different than an athlete who, who trains and practices and practices and practices to get better at his skill and his craft. Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Christian love is loving others the way God treated us. Christian love is loving others the way God treated us. Well, how did he treat us? Romans 5, 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I think of that song we just sang a moment ago. How was Christ's love shown to us? His love ran red. Speaking of the blood of his only begotten son. What about this phrase here at the end of verse 8? For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. When I first read this, I'm thinking, well, love in this this context is talking about the the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is the example of that charity, of that love, which covered the multitude of sins. Um, When our sin is forgiven, it's cast as far as the east is from the west. But then as I read more studies, everybody was talking about this idea of not only does love cover the multitude of sins, but it also conceals it. It hides it. And I was like, what in the world is going on here? Because Peter is quoting Proverbs. In Proverbs ten twelve, it says, Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. Well, that makes sense. Usually when there's hatred around, there's going to be arguments. 
There's going to be fights. There's going to be battles. Love doesn't approve of sin, but rather covers it, covers it or conceals it from being public knowledge. Going back to that article I was talking about a little bit earlier, this young lady was a, a young teenage girl. She, she admitted, I was rebellious. I messed up. I made a mistake. I was afraid of the consequence that was going to happen. And then it says here, the day, and I'll read her words because I don't want to mess this up. She said, the day I finally mustered up the strength and courage and confided in my father, something extraordinary happened. She said, my father's shoulders sagged and he hung his head. Momentarily, we, we sat in silence, me holding my breath, awaiting his reaction, while wearing the weight of his certain disappointment and possible anger. Before I go on, how many of us remember that with our parents whenever we did something wrong? That weight. She goes on to say, then there was the indescribable and overwhelming feeling of shame that washed over me in waves. She knew she had messed up. She wasn't trying to hide that. And then she said, my father finally raised his head and looked at me with tears in his eyes. Honey, he said, I am so disappointed. I am. She goes on to say, now it was my turn to hang my head. Her father continued, and you have made poor choices, which now have consequences. He said, it won't be easy, and there will be struggles and a hard path ahead of you. Listen to these next words. But I love you. And now I figure I have been given more to love. When I read that this week, I was bawling my eyes out. This father, this pastor, is no different than you and me. His daughter made a mistake. She's owning up to it. She's confiding in her father what had happened. And instead of going off the handle, instead of ripping up her face and telling her, instead of reacting in the flesh, he said, I love you. I acknowledge what you did was wrong. I'm disappointed. He's not brushing that under the rug. He said, you did something wrong. There's going to be consequences. But he replies with, I love you. And now I've been given more to love. I texted my wife this week after she had found this article and sent it to me. I, I called her, actually. I said, I pray that when my children make mistakes, that I can respond in the same way and not get angry and not get in the flesh. Am I perfect? Am I going to mess up? Am I going to respond that way every time? I can tell you right now I won't. But this is a picture of exactly how God responds to us when we mess up. He says, yes, you messed up. Yes, there's consequences. But I love you. In fact, I love you so much in that while you were a sinner, I sent my son Jesus to die for the very thing you just did. We don't deserve that. It's the ultimate picture of, of grace. He, um, she goes on to say, well, after he said that, she's like, wait, What? She says, my mouth was wide open. I couldn't, before I could respond to my father, before I could respond, my father got up from his chair and reached over and wrapped me in his arms and simply held me. She says, it was just what I needed and not anything I expected. 
As tears ran down my face, she said, I am sorry, Dad. I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? And he just replies, of course. She goes on to say, what I encountered was something I'd never fully grasped before I had been taught, though I had been taught about it for years. That was grace. I didn't get what I deserved, but I certainly felt, certainly fully received what I have been taught. She talked about a little later, this grace moment propelled her life in a new direction. When she would look at her son, um, and a lot of times in those situations, like I'm not condoning it, I'm not like saying, hey, this can work out, but she looked at her son and said, this son is a picture of my father's grace. Like when she looks at her son now, that's what she sees. And she literally said, look, I could have made a decision to totally erase this problem. But she said she decided not to. She said, I confessed my sins. I cleaned up my act and I charted a new course fanned by the winds of grace and truth spoken in love. And and, and goes on to say that she's actually counseled and spoke to many unwed teen moms, even moms incarcerated to share those lessons regarding how she was um, taught. But this is the point of the whole illustration here. She says, shame did not teach me. Grace did. And I didn't learn about grace by hearing about it, but by being the recipient of it. And that is the same with our lives as as Christians. The fact that as we sat here a moment ago and we were singing these songs about how, how love ran red and, and how full streams of grace and, 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 and how Jesus died on the cross and gave us things that you and I didn't deserve. You and I are recipients of God's grace. We're not perfect. But certain things that happen in our lives are really should stay between us and God. There's certain things I believe that we should bring an accountability for. There's certain things that I believe that um, those in leadership should know about. But because we're not perfect, this idea in Proverbs about hatred stirring up strifes, or or this idea of love covering and concealing all sins um, from being public knowledge, when God says he cast our sin as far as the east is from the west and forgets it, why do we as Christians seem to remember what other people do to us? If God can forget it, why can't we? I specifically, when someone asks to pray for, hey, pray for me, there's this part of me that really wants to know, well, what's going on? One thing I, is another pet peeve of mine is when I ask someone to pray for me and then they say, oh, what's really going on? So I can pray specifically, intelligently. So and part of me is like, no, I, I don't want you to know all the juicy details so you can go tell all your friends about it. I want you to just simply pray for me, to love me. Because in reality, we don't need our dirty laundry hung out to dry for the lost world to see. They already criticize us enough. But what I want the lost world to know about me is I don't claim to be perfect. Yes, I serve a perfect Savior. Yes, my sins are covered by His perfect blood. But in turn, I am not perfect. In fact, I'm still striving to be more in the image of Christ. Love one another. Have fervent charity among yourselves. Verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. In other words, serve others without complaining about it. You can ask my wife. There's times where I'm in service and I complain about something. Peter's saying, look, love each other. Serve each other and don't do it with a complaining spirit. Do it for God's glory. Verse 10, 
As, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. As every man hath received the gift, minister the same one to another. Each, every one of us as Christians are, are enabled and, and we acquire spiritual gifts to, to serve people with, not just to, to hold back and to keep ourselves. Some have the gift to teach. Others have gifts that relate to service. And a lot of times those service gifts are behind-the-scenes ministries. I don't know about you, but I had a parking spot this morning. There's people involved with a parking lot ministry. I don't know about you, but my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter right now is not screaming her head off because there's people in a nursery um, watching her play with a toy kitchen. Um, there's people behind the scenes doing things that make the public ministries more possible. Serve without complaint. Allow God to enable you to take those gifts and use them. In verse 11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability to which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why did God give us grace? Why did, in our past condition, our present conversion, or even in our future conduct, why did God share these pictures of grace? So that we can serve others, so we can love others, and we can give Him the glory. To give God in all things may be glorified through Christ Jesus. He gives us the ability to work. We have the ability to thank Him and praise Him. Thank you for worshiping with us here at Oasis Online. If this message was an encouragement to you, would you send me an email and let me know at pastor at obclv.org. Before you go, go check us out at oasisbaptistchurch.org. And if we can be of any help to you, or an encouragement to you, please let us know. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day.